Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome. We're going to continue going through how to get the most out of your Bible. And we're on page 14. Anybody need a notebook? We've got one left over there. Anybody need everybody have? All right, good. Page 14. And we've been looking at the storyline of the Bible, which is really about three things. Creation, fall, redemption, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And God gives an orientation to uh, humanity in the garden, who he is and what he expects from us. The fall is, results in disorientation. Everything's distorted. Nothing's the way it's supposed to be. And that is who we are and what our problem is. And then redemption or reorientation is what God's doing about it in his world. And early on in the Bible, chapter 3 and uh, verse uh, 15, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God says the solution to this is going to come through a member of the human race, through the seed of the woman. And God begins to keep track of the line through whom this promised one is going to come. And so you get the, the genealogies. Uh, in chapter 5 and in chapter 10 of Genesis. And then God narrows it down, that, that line through whom the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one is going to come, uh, and calls a man named uh, Abraham. And he calls Abraham out of modern-day Babylon. He says, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to make your seed great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham uh, obeys God. Abraham was called, not because Abraham was great, but because God was great to Abraham. You keep seeing this theme over and over in Scripture. So it's not that God is finding good people, it's God's finding people and making them good. That's the way it always, always goes. And so then the Bible follows the line of Abraham and goes through Abraham's son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And God gives to Israel prophets, priests, and kings. And what you're supposed to get out of seeing all those prophets, priests, and kings uh, is that all of them failed. Uh, there were some better than others, some quite good, but none of them were uh, fulfilled their office the way it was designed to be fulfilled. And so they all dis disobeyed, and the nation as a whole disobeyed God. And as a result, they were taken into captivity. And you had in 722 B.C., you had the Assyrians that conquered uh, the, northern, the northern kingdom. And you had in 586 B.C., you had the Babylonians who took captive the southern kingdom. Now, I say the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You remember several pages back, and you have it on a chart in case you forgot, that the kingdom was split. So it was, it was united under Saul and under David and under... David's son Solomon, but then Solomon, after Solomon's death, it was divided in two under one of his generals and one of his sons, a northern portion and a southern portion. That northern portion called Israel, southern portion called, called Judah. And again, all of them had these prophets and priests, and they had kings, but all of them, all of them failed. So throughout the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you see this cycle of grace, and then response, and then judgment, and then more grace. God keeps, God keeps doing that. And you see that people just don't learn, <laughs> and, the, and thus the whole judgment piece. But God continues to make overtures to, to his people, and he does that uh, to this very day. 
and will be doing it until the last of his chosen people are brought into, into his fold. And so you come to the end of the, the Old Testament, and the Jews have been ruled by Babylon, been carted off to Babylon from Jerusalem. Uh, one of the more famous people who was car carted off to, to Babylon is Daniel. You have a book by that name, 12 chapters worth in uh, your Old Testament. And he had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the book of Daniel talks about their experiences there. And in the book of Daniel itself, you have a transition from the Babylonian Empire, led by the great Nebuchadnezzar. When I say great, I just mean he had a, a gr great power. And to the Second World Empire, which was the Persian, the Persian Empire. And that happens in the book, the book of Daniel itself. But Daniel also predicts that after him and after the Persian Empire, there are going to be two more world empires. And these happen centuries after the day of Daniel. So this is God giving insight to Daniel to be able to predict, to prophesy. Famously, in Daniel chapter 2, God gives Daniel a vision of an image. And this is an image that has a head of, of gold, has a chest of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron. And David gives the interpretation of what this is. And David tells Nebuchadnezzar, so this has got to be unsettling. Think about this, you're Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, you're the head of gold. Well, this is bad because there's stuff coming after me. <laughs> and sure enough, he's going to be, he's going to be dethroned. And uh, coming after you is going to be another kingdom represented by the silver, and in the book of Daniel, as they say, the Persian Empire is that silver kingdom. And then after that, in world history, uh, that third kingdom is the kingdom of Greece, spread by none other than Alexander the Great, and then the Iron Kingdom is, is the, Roman, the Roman Empire. So page 14, you see all of that. That's what uh, this portion is about. The second 2,000 years of history that are given to us in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, part three. So we have the first 2,000 years, you may remember, and those first 2,000 years are given in just the first 11 chapters of the Bible. It covers 2,000 years worth of history. But then beginning in Genesis chapter 12, through the end of the Old Testament, you have a second 2,000 years, and that covers all of, all of those books, you know, 30, 38 and a half books of the 39 cover this 2,000 year period, and that's why we have three parts to, to cover it. And this third part is actually not found uh, explicitly in the Old Testament, because most of what happens in this third part, you see at the top of page 14, it says the intertestament times. So the intertestament times meaning in between the two testaments. So between the, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, you have this stuff happen. And the one hint that we have to it is in the book of Daniel, because Daniel lived in the Babylonian Empire. Then the book of Daniel records the transition to the Persian and then predicts the other two. But all of this happens in this uh, intertestamental period of 400 years. So all of this stuff is going to be going on in, in 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're going, 
We need something different. <laughs> we need a different prophet. We need a better priest. We need a better king. And so the Bible has set it up for the coming of the anointed one who would be all of, will be all of those. So top of page 14. World and regional empires. You've got four world empires, as we're going to see, and you'll have two regional empires. During the intertestament time, the Jews returned to their land, but continued to be under the control of other empires. The, these empires were prophesied by Daniel in the 500s BC. You see reference there, Daniel 2, as I said. So you've got Babylon in the 500s BC. 586 BC uh, is when this captivity begins. They're held captive in Babylon for 70 years. But the next world empire is that of Persia in the 400s. After conquering Babylon, they let the Jews return to Jerusalem and ruled them through, uh, through Nehemiah. And this is how the Old Testament ends. After Nehemiah, Judah was basically ruled by priests who were responsible to Persia. It's in the 300s, uh, 330 BC, uh, to be exact, that you have Alexander beginning his conquests, and you have the Greek Empire. And they took over via Alexander the Great. He was also a friend of Aristotle. He conquered the whole Western world in the late 300s, dies at the age of 32. Okay, so he conquers the world pretty much. Uh, on his deathbed, laments that there are no more worlds to conquer and dies at, at 32. Leaving his empire, though, there, he, he didn't have a successor. And so he leaves his empire to be divided among his four top generals. And by the way, Daniel predicted that, too. So in Daniel, in the symbolism of Daniel, you have the statue, but you have some other symbols. And one of those is uh, an animal with these four wings that symbolizes the four generals that would come after after Alexander. One of them ruled uh, Greece, one in Turkey, one in Syria, and one in Egypt. And significant for the Jews and for now upcoming uh, New Testament history is the general in Egypt and the one in Syria. And that's why D and E here deal with Egypt and Syria. These are the two regional empires. So you've got the four world empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome in a little bit, but in between Greece and Rome, you've got these regional empires of Syria and, and Egypt. You see D there in the 200s, the Jews were under the Ptolemies of, of Egypt, and they were treated quite well. They encouraged the, Jew, encouraged the Jews in Alexandria to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, or the LXX. LXX is Roman numerals for 70, and that's because 70 scholars were involved in translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. So you'll sometimes see it in writing as the LXX. And it was the version of the Old Testament that was used at the time of Christ and the apostles, this Greek translation of the Old Testament, even though it was originally written in, in Hebrew. And then you have the regional empire of Syria. In the 100s, the Jews were persecuted by the Seleucids of Syria, in particular, Antiochus Epiphanes. In 198, Syria took Judah away from the Egyptians. They appointed Greeks to the priesthood. Now notice, offered a pig on the Jewish altar and killed many Jews. 
Around 175, an old Jewish priest named Mattahias and his sons rebelled against Syria, and a guerrilla-type war began. These Jewish soldiers were called Maccabees after one of Mattahias' sons, and later Hasmoneans after his father. Now notice this incredible thing here. On December 25, 165 BC, they, they reclaimed the temple and restored the sacrifices. And here, here's the, to me, incredible part of that. They rededicate the temple after this guerrilla war that went on for three years because it was on December 25th of 168 BC, December 25th, 168 BC, that Antiochus offered that pig on the altar in the temple and desecrated it. And exactly three years to the day, they took it back and rededicated it to, to the Lord. So it's quite an, quite an amazing, amazing story. And then they, they celebrated that recapture of the temple and rededication to the Lord and they celebrated an eight-day feast that's known to this day as Hanukkah. So uh, these guys, the Maccabees, did this. Now, during this 400-year period, end of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the New, you don't have any books of the Bible being written. But you have books being written. You have stuff being written, including a, a couple of books called Maccabees. And those are a couple of books that show up in uh, the Roman Catholic Bible. You guys remember me saying at the very beginning, I'm sure you don't, but <laughs> don't blame you, but saying that the Roman Catholic Bible has 73 books instead of, instead of 66, and that those extra seven are appended to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament has 39, but theirs has 46, and these other seven come from this intertestamental period. And a couple of those seven extra books are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, they're very valuable in terms of history because they tell you about stuff, stuff like this. But they're not written by apostles or prophets. Christ did not, uh, did not uh, use them, uh, quote them. Uh, and so they're not inspired. So they're thus not supposed to be a part of what we call the canon. But Roman Catholicism includes, includes them. But they are very, very valuable historical historical documents. And then you have, you have Rome, and we'll talk about Rome here in a, in a bit. So, by the time Christ comes, you have, you have God having set up the world exactly the way he wanted it to be for the coming of the Anointed One. Everything has moved in world history to that. Everything in world history has moved toward that. Everything in world history right now is moving toward his return. Keep that in mind. Stop being scared. Christians don't do fear. Okay, I, have I said that a few times? We don't do fear because God is working all things toward their appointed end. And past performance does predict future results when it comes to God. <laughs> okay. And his past performance has been perfect. And he said, I'm going to send this anointed one, the Messiah. And he set everything up for the perfect time for that to happen. 
And so that includes setting the world up religiously, culturally, and politically. And it is exactly right for Jesus to come in all three of those, religious, cultural, political. The, relig the dominant religion at the time Jesus comes to the place he comes, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, is Judaism. And God worked through this intertestamental period to cause a fervor, a fever pitch, to be awaiting the coming of the Messiah because they hated the Romans. We're looking forward to the king who is going to conquer these Gentile oppressors. And you have the Hasmoneans um, who become, as we're going to see in a little bit, the Pharisees that you'll read about right away in your New Testament. This is a religious party. So everything's set up religiously. Judaism is the dominant religious force at the time, but also culturally, and the cultural force is Greek culture. Even though Rome is in charge, the Romans wisely did not require the lands that they conquer to adopt Roman culture. They allowed them to keep their own. And Alexander had spread Greek culture all over the Western world. Well, this is beautiful for Christianity because he spread a common language throughout the world. Something called Greek. And a particular type of Greek that I told you about weeks ago. Koine Greek, common Greek. There's Koine Greek and there's Classical Greek. Classical Greek is kind of the highbrow Greek you know, that literature is written in and all that. But the common Greek of commercial enterprise and you know, everyday industry was Koine Greek. And your New Testament's written in Greek, but not in Classical Greek. It's written in, in Koine. So God sets it up for, the, you know, for, the, for this, this message to be able to spread throughout the, the then known world. And then the political power is, is Rome. And God uses you know, guys like Caesar Augustus to carry out his work. In Luke chapter 2, you know, Caesar Augustus, he uses that title, Caesar, his name, Augustus. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. And that sent Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, where then Jesus is, is born. So you put, all that, you put all that together, and you come to your New Testament, and you come to the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. And Paul, who writes it, says this, When the time was just right. When the time was just right. All of that put together. When the time was just right. God sent forth his son. That's a mouthful. When the time was just right is a mouthful, Right? It's all this stuff, making it just right. So much so that by the time Jesus is crucified, to signify these three dominant strains of religion and culture and, and politics, when Jesus is crucified in the King James Version in Luke chapter 23 and verse 38, Luke 23 and verse 38, in the King James Version it says there was a plaque put above him on the cross that said this is the king of the Jews and it says it was written in three languages in in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin the religious the cultural and the and the political so here's Galatians 4 4 when the time was just right 
God sent forth His Son. And that phrase, God sent forth His Son. So this is a pre-existent one. This is one who is sent. We're going to see in a moment that the verse says He was born. But before He was born, He was sent. He was sent to be born because He pre-existed before the birth. So when the time was just right, God sent forth His Son. And then it says, born of a woman. You guys remember, does this remind you of anything, born of a woman? This is important. Because I've been beating on it every single week. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The solution to the problem of sin is going to come from a member of the human race through the seed of, right? So that's why it says this, born of a woman. We've been keeping track all the way through. And now you come to the New Testament and its opening chapter in Matthew chapter 1. And what's it start with? A genealogy again. Just to make sure we're all keeping track. And then Paul says, God sent forth his son born of a woman. But then he says something else. Paul does. He says born of a woman. Then he says born under the law. Born under the law that he might redeem. Y'all remember what God's purpose is here. I keep saying it's creation, fall. What was the third thing? Redemption. That he might redeem those under the law. He's born under the law himself. That he might redeem, that he might buy back, that he might purchase back, he might retrieve those under the law. Now, now, how does that work? Well, here's how it works. You read through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, everybody's messed up, including the priests and the prophets and the kings and everybody else under them. They've all sinned. None of them have kept the law. God gave the law, and how many people kept it? Zero. And so now one comes who is born under the law, and guess what he does? He keeps it perfectly. And that's how he's able to redeem those under the law. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He's born under it and he keeps it for the benefit of those who couldn't. And then Galatians chapter 4 goes on to say then he adopts those people into his family. And he gives them his Holy Spirit. Whereby we cry out, anybody remember? Abba, Father. So you're estranged from him. You're estranged from God. You see it in the Old Testament, that estrangement, and the cycle that I keep telling you about, about grace and then response and judgment and then more grace. And so we're estranged from God. You see that in very stark ways throughout the history of God's dealings with his people and the people outside of his chosen nation. And then he brings the Messiah who comes to do what he was predestined to do before the foundation of the world. He keeps the law perfectly so that he can redeem those who couldn't, adopts them into his family, gives them his Holy Spirit, and we have this intimate relationship with him whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I think it's a marvelous story. How about you guys? And it's one that we need to know cold. You need to be able to explain it to other people. You need to be able to explain it to your kids. 
you need to believe it. And then you need to live like it's true. Now, you guys are here on Wednesday night, so you're doing pretty good. I mean, this, this is part of your redemption, showing up to my class. No. <laughs> no, but, you know, you're taking it seriously is the point. And that's a good thing. Um, and, and so uh, we've tried so far, now we're just getting into the New Testament, to distill the message down to its most important points so that you can, you can get those, know them, believe them, live in light of them, tell other people about them. January, uh, next semester, we're going to have a class on evangelism. And that evangelism class is going to go through something similar. It's going to go through uh, kind of a biblical theology, a chronology of the message. But then talk in uh, some detail about how then to take that and give it to, to other people. Okay? All right. Bottom of page 14. So Rome. About 50 B.C., Rome under Julius Caesar is rapidly becoming the next dominant world empire. Because of leadership squabbles within the old Maccabean Hasmonean family, the appointed Hasmonean ruler used a man named Antipater to negotiate with Rome. Antipater came up with an arrangement where the Jews could more or less rule themselves. He was an Edomite. That is, he came through the lineage of Esau, if you remember that, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and then Jacob had uh, a brother named, twin brother named Esau. After Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC and his nephew Caesar Augustus defeated Cleopatra of Egypt and ruled the Western world. So let's just stop here. His nephew, Julius Caesar's nephew, Caesar Augustus. And that guy shows up in Luke chapter 2, issuing a decree that the world should be taxed. He defeats Cleopatra, rules the Western world. Antipater's son was appointed by Rome as king of the Jews. He was Herod the Great. So you meet Herod in your New Testament, early on. At first he was good. He married a granddaughter of a Maccabean leader, built many structures for the Jews, and repaired the temple. But then he went mad, insane, even killing his own wife and sons because he thought they would take away his throne. When the wise men came from the east, he went to Bethlehem looking for this king of the Jews. He killed the boy babies in Bethlehem as an attempt to kill this, this king. And you guys remember that story, and you'll be reading about it again here in a few weeks because Christmas is coming, okay? All right, page 15 then. You have the second 2,000 years, part three. And as always, there's a timeline across the top, and then you've got the, the blanks. Some of you have probably already filled those in because you're getting the, the hang of it, that the answers are all on the previous page. Just like, just like when you took tests when you were in, in high school and you, and you cheated, and you, had, <laughs> and you had the answers there with you. Okay, so here are, the, here are the answers. So across the top, A, the Babylonian Empire on the left there. And then after that's the Persian Empire in the 400s, the Greek Empire in the 300s. So Babylon, Persia, Greece. And then you've got these two, D and E, are these regional empires, uh, Egypt and Syria. D and E, Egypt and Syria and then Rome. So Babylon, Persia, Greece, Egypt, Syria, Rome. And you got the same thing in the rectangular box going down the left side, A through F, same, same things. And then to the right of that is that statue that I mentioned from Daniel chapter 2. 
Remember that statue that Daniel saw with the head of gold and then the chest of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron, representing these four world empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But in between Greece and Rome, you've got D&E over to the right, again, Egypt and Syria. And there's always a map showing you where these are with the, with the letters. Okay? Now, if you, don't, if you don't have a little bit of that, <laughs> a little bit of that history of this 400 years, what was going on, now you come to your New Testament and you'll be lost. As I mentioned at the end of our time last week, you're going to turn to your New Testament after having read the Old Testament and you're going to go, well, who's Caesar? How did he show up? I mean, last I read, the Persians were in charge, and now it's, and now it's the Romans. Well, this history tells you, you know, why and how. And so Caesar's in charge politically. And then religiously, yeah, it was all, the Old Testament's all about God's chosen people, the Jews and the nation of Israel. We've still got that, but now we've got these people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who are those people and where did they come from? We're going to talk about them in, in a little bit. And then early on, as you read in your New Testament, you've got Jesus going to a place called a synagogue. And in the first part of your Bible, you don't have any synagogues. You've got the temple, you've got the tabernacle, you've got the people taken in captivity over to Babylon. They're away from the temple, but they still pray toward the temple. You guys remember that? Remember when Daniel is in Babylon? He prays, but he purposely prays toward Jerusalem. Because still, that's the holy place. That's the holy city. That's where, that's where God meets with his people, at least as far as the Old Testament goes. So the intertestament period has prepared the world for all of this, and it explains all of these things that otherwise you wouldn't know anything about. And as I say, we'll, we'll talk about them here, in, uh, some, of, some more of them here in a little bit. So the New Testament begins, page 16. New Testament begins, and the first part of the Bible has been predicting, in Hebrew, a Mashiach, the Messiah. And it means anointed one. And when you come to now the New Testament, the Messiah comes on the scene immediately. But it's no longer Hebrew that is dominant, but Greek. And so, in, so instead of Mashiach, it is Christos. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. So in your New Testament, you will read, Jesus is the Christ. So Christ is not his last name. It's his title. He's the Anointed One. He's the Messiah. And his name, given in the very first chapter of the New Testament, as Mary is with child, and yet she's engaged to be married, and she and Joseph have never been intimate. Joseph is, as you might understand, bewildered and ticked, <laughs> both. And an angel, so much so an angel has to come to him and to explain what's going on here, and says to, to Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife because this one who is conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. And you 
are going to call his name Jesus. Matthew 1.21, Matthew 1.21, you are going to call his name Jesus. Here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. Now, why call him Jesus, save his people from Because that's what Jesus means. It means Yahweh saves. God saves. That's what the name Jesus means. And that's the name you're going <laughs> to you're going to give to him. So his name is Jesus. The name means God, Yahweh, saves. And Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the, the promised one who has, has now come. And he comes uh, in, that, in that first chapter of the New Testament via a miraculous conception. We sometimes talk about the virgin birth but the miracle is the virgin conception. <laughs> I mean, the miracle is nine months earlier. Okay? It's the virgin conception. And the virgin conception is, I talk about this a bit in Master Plan for Life. You guys notice I just have all these ways to promote Master Plan for Life. I just sort of throw it in there, Sunday mornings. Okay, all right. Uh, but the virgin conception is necessary in order to prevent a sin nature from being passed to the, the Messiah. Because our soul is transmitted via procreation. In Psalm 51 and verse 5, Psalm 51 and verse 5, David says, that I was, sin, I, be, I was a sinner at the time my mother conceived me. So you, get, you, you have two sinners that, that come together to conceive another, another life. They pass on their physical characteristics, but also spiritual characteristics, and we are all sinners. And so some people's kids, you know, they're all sinners, including yours, cute as they are. Cute as they were on Trick or Treat, you know, and Monday and all of that. All, all of us. So, now, ladies, sometimes when I say this and I say, so, you know, the man couldn't be involved. In order to involve a, a sin nature, the women go, aha. <laughs> it's, the sin nature comes from the man. But that's not the case. It comes, from, it comes from the union of the man and the woman. And God did this miraculous thing in the virgin conception to keep that from happening, and had predicted that 700 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And he says you will call him, you guys remember? Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. So his name is Jesus, says the angel, but Emmanuel's another title. And when you come to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, Matthew 1.23, uh, that verse from Isaiah is quoted, and then Matthew does us the favor of interpreting what Emmanuel means. God with us. God with us. God has come. God has come to earth. God has come through a miraculous conception. And now he is going to be the perfect prophet and priest and, and king. In the very first book of the New Testament then, Matthew, Matthew gives his genealogy. In that genealogy, uh, Matthew, sa he, he, Matthew 
uh, calls out uh, three prominent people in the genealogy. Um, Adam, Abraham, and David. Adam, Abraham, and David. And he shows how from Adam to Abraham, and then from Abraham to David, King David, and then that Jesus is a descendant of King David. And so now he's the king. And he's the promised king. And Matthew is so intent on showing how prominent those three are that he only gives you 14 generations between each one. Now, there are actually more than that. But he only gives you 14 because he, doesn't want to, he wants you to see these are the highlights. That's in the very first chapter of your, of your New Testament. And Matthew starts in the first 12 chapters with the king coming and proclaiming his kingdom. You guys remember reading at the very beginning, the kingdom is at hand? And Jesus saying the kingdom is at hand because the king is, is now here. In the first 12 chapters, he offers this kingdom, but he came to his own people and they rejected, they, the Jews, rejected the king that had been promised for all this time. And so then from chapter 12 uh, through verse, or chapter 12 through uh, chapter 23, Matthew chapter 12 through Matthew 23, Jesus gives parables of the kingdom. You remember reading in Matthew and you got to, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like. You guys remember that? And he gives these parables of the kingdom. And so what he's doing there now is he's talking to these people to whom he's offered the kingdom and who have rejected it. And he's saying, hey, this is what the kingdom that you're rejecting is like. You really should reconsider. When you come to chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is on a mountain called uh, the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives. It's from the Mount of Olives that Jesus will ultimately ascend back to heaven after he's completed his work on earth. But in Matthew 24 and 25, he's at the Mount of Olives and he gives what's called the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount Olivet, he's on the Mount of Olives. Discourse, teaching. He gives this famous teaching for, for two chapters. And I would encourage you, you know, to read the New Testament. I would encourage you to read Matthew. And when you get to chapters 24 and 25, look what Jesus says about the kingdom. And it's a, it's a future kingdom. And it is a cataclysmic kingdom as well. There's going to be all kinds of... Um, uh, phenomena that are going to take place that are going to accompany this, uh, this, this coming kingdom. So the first four books, and the first of those is Matthew. It kind of sets the tone, the king, written to Jews primarily. And the first four books of your New Testament are about the life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the first three of those four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are a special category. They're different than John. Um, they have a special name. Those three are called the synoptic, synoptic Gospels. And it's because they all do the same thing. They all have these episodes in the life of, of Jesus that point to who he is, in particular for a particular audience. Like in the case of Matthew, it's for Jews. Here's your king that was promised. But when you look at Luke, it's written for Gentiles. 
And so he picks out episodes in the life of Jesus uh, accordingly. John, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John uh, doesn't pick out these episodes for a particular audience. John is deep theology about God having come as man and all of the proof that he is, he's not just the king, he's actually God. And uh, he starts it out that way that he's God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then John goes on to pick out seven, seven signs that Jesus did. As you read through the Gospel of John, that's what you're looking for. He uses that word, signs. And Jesus did this sign, and there are seven of them to show that he's God. And when he gets to the end, when John gets to the end of his gospel, he said, Jesus did many more signs. And I suppose if all of them were written, all the books in the world could not contain them. That's, that's what John actually says at the end. But these are written that you may know that he is the Son of God, that he is indeed has all the character qualities of God. That's what the phrase Son of God means. So top of page 16, the birth of Christ, and then the life of Christ in the Gospels. The Messiah, the anointed one, born of a virgin in Bethlehem. We saw that going back to the eighth book of your Bible in Ruth. That's why Bethlehem. Mary had traveled there from her own town of Nazareth with Joseph because Augustus had declared this census for tax purposes. And then there's the move to Egypt. After some time passed, the Magi, or wise men, arrived from the east. They followed a light in the sky, which directed them to Jerusalem. Herod learned from the scribes and chief priests, who quoted Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, uh, Blessed are you, Bethlehem Ephratah. That's what it says. Because there's a different Bethlehem. So we want you to, so that's how precise the Bible is. Make sure you get the right Bethlehem, okay? And, and this is written several hundred years, Micah, before the coming of Christ, to say that's the town it's going to happen in. And again, we know it's going to happen in that town because the great-grandmother of King David is Ruth, and the king's going to come through the line of, of King David. And so they quote Micah 5.2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He directed the wise men to go there. Herod planned to murder Jesus because the wise men called him the king of the Jews. When they did not return to Herod, he had all the boys of Bethlehem, two years and old and younger, killed. Joseph was warned by an angel, and he fled with his family to Egypt. Now, the symbolism of this, if you've read through the first part of your Bible at this point, and now here you are, you're in just the second chapter of the New Testament. And you've got these Jews in Egypt. So this reminds you of something, does it not? I mean, in the, and in the second book of the um, second book of the Bible, where do you have the Jews? You have them in, in Egypt. And God's going to bring it. So, so God is reminding us that this is a story about him with his chosen people, the Jews. And through now the Messiah, he is at work accomplishing that work uh, to his people, the Jews. And so you have another, in effect, exodus 
from Egypt. Because when you get to number three here, you have the return to, to Nazareth. An angel appeared in a dream to Joseph, telling him to return to, to Israel. So this is emphasizing that indeed God's ministry to his people, to Israel, is to continue. That's his, his desire. And in fact, John chapter 1 and verse 11, John chapter 1 and verse 11 says this, He, that is Christ, Jesus, came to his own. Who are his own? The Jews. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God. So he comes to the Jews first. He comes to his own. But his own, by and large, some did, of course. The apostles did. They were all Jewish. Some did, but by and large, they did not. But whoever did, whether Jews or Gentiles, he gave the authority to become part of his family, to become children of, of God. So then there's that. There's the beginning, you know. It's, uh, he's, he's born. He's born miraculously. There's all the angelic activity. There's the, the picture of this and the beginning of the Bible and God's people in, in Egypt. And then you don't hear about Jesus when he's three or he's five or six. Nothing. I mean, the closest you get is in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. And Luke just summarizes it by saying, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So he kept growing. You know, he grew intellectually. He grew physically. But that's all. And the next time you find him is number four. He's 12. And he's at the temple. And you remember he's confounding the elders in, in the temple. Now, you guys familiar with a bar mitzvah? Uh, a bar mitzvah, there's a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is for a boy and a bat mitzvah is for a girl. And a bar, when you see bar like in your, in your New Testament, the word bar, um, you won't see it in the NIV, but in the King James, it says uh, of Peter, the Apostle Peter, that his Jewish name is Simon Bar Jonah. Well, Bar means son. And so he's Simon, son of Jonah. And so a Bar mitzvah, Bar means son. Mitzvot means commandment, law. At a Bar mitzvah, a Jewish boy becomes a son of the law. He come, becomes responsible to, to follow the law himself. Bat mitzvah, same thing for a, for a girl. Now, that whole ceremony that we know today that they do for both of those developed in the Middle Ages. So that, they didn't do that ceremony here. But many believe that Jesus, at this point, is becoming a son of the law. And that's the next time you hear from him. He's grown in wisdom and in stature, and he now is responsible to follow the law. And as we've seen from Galatians chapter 4, he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. He actually, thanks be to God, he did it perfectly. That he kept, that he kept the law. So here is Jesus from a family in Nazareth. At one point, people asked, he's the Messiah? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he's from the wrong side of the tracks. 
So when, when the Messiah comes, he doesn't come as anything special, you know, in terms of sociology, economically. Personally, I find that instructive when, when Isaiah chapter 53 talks about him. They said there's nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. And so God's not impressed with that stuff is the point. I mean, think about how he could have come. But he, he came humble. And he was that way throughout his, throughout his life. And if we are going to reflect the character of Christ, then we're going to do the same. We're going to do the same thing. Then you have his baptism at the age of 30. All right, so you talk about gaps, right? Birth, 12. Baptism at, at 30. And he, he's worked with you know, his father, Joseph, in the carpenter's shop. He's learned a, he's learned a trade. He's a carpenter himself. Uh, but now he's going to begin his public ministry for three, for three years at the age of 30. And to begin that public ministry, he is baptized, number five. So Joseph may have died fairly young, making Jesus a provider as a builder, a trade he apparently learned from Joseph. Then, at about 30 years of age, he began his public ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist, who had begun his own ministry earlier that same year. Christ's baptism was most likely near the southern end of the Jordan River, above the southern end of the, of the Dead Sea. Now, what's the, what's the significance of this baptism? Well, you remember when he was baptized that God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? And you also remember, and I think I mentioned it last time, that there is this thing in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, when these kings were uh, consecrated as king, that they were anointed with oil to symbolize the Holy Spirit and receive this fancy thing called the theocratic anointing. They were given the anointing to rule on behalf of God, to rule his nation on his behalf. The theocratic anointing. In Psalm 51 and verse 11, Psalm 51 and verse 11, I think I mentioned last week that David, after David had sinned grievously, he says, Lord, remove not your Holy Spirit from me. He, he's saying, can I still remain king? Can I still maintain the theocratic anointing from the Holy Spirit? Jesus, when he gets baptized now, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of the dove. So he is now receiving this theocratic anointing. He is the, the king. All of these kings have sinned. All of them have fallen short. Now has come, come a king who, who will not. And then number six, the, the temptation by, by Satan. So one of the first things that happens is after he starts his public ministry, first thing is he's tempted. And I say first thing, um, you know, it, it happens in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Both Matthew 4 and Luke 4 record the temptation of Jesus. So this is early on in, the, in these Gospels that this temptation happens. Now here's why. Again, the, the Old Testament has set the table for all of this. The first Adam was tempted, and he failed. And this, at the very beginning, is setting the story that the, the last Adam is tempted, but he succeeds. And that sets the trajectory for the rest of his ministry now. He is not going to fail. He's not going to fail as the prophet, priest, and king. 
He will not sin. He will keep the law as a, as a, a son of the law. And so the temptation by Satan, when you read that, you know, don't, don't blow past that. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And because Jesus succeeded, and he succeeded throughout the entirety of his life, now when you come to him believing who he is and what he has done, you receive the law-keeping that he did. You receive the righteousness that he achieved that you can't. So you should get in the habit of saying, Jesus lived for me. Not just Jesus died for me. If all he did was come to die, he could have gotten it over with a lot sooner. But it was 33 years worth of keeping perfectly God's law. He not only didn't sin, he did everything right. Those are not the same thing, you know that. Just avoiding wrong is not the same as always doing right. But you have to positively do right in order to have righteousness before God. And Jesus did that perfectly throughout his life. And it started with the temptation. And he passes, succeeds where Adam fails. So he starts his ministry then, uh, succeeding where the first Adam failed. And then number seven here, he calls his first followers the disciples. I prefer to call the disciples the apostles. And the reason is now it says they're the first disciples, so that's, that's good. But I prefer apostles because every believer is a disciple. So, you know, sometimes we say the 12 disciples. In fact, there are a few spots in the, in the New Testament where it says that, the 12 disciples, so it's fine. But it can get a little confusing since we're all disciples. Disciples are, a disciple is a learner, a follower. We are all learners and followers of Christ. And in the New Testament, to disciple and believer are used synonymously. So these 12 disciples are a special category. They're apostles. So every uh, apostle is a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. I'm a disciple, but I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle either. If you thought you were an apostle, I hate to burst your bubble, but you are not an apostle. Okay. So here they are, the first. After the temptation, he returned to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing. He met John and Andrew. They were disciples of John the Baptist, but now began to follow Christ. Next, he chose Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Then he went to a wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine, and that is his first recorded miracle. So the reason I, I talk about them being the apostles is because the apostles, as you go through your New Testament now, you're going to find that they are unique. The apostles can do stuff you can't do. Um, they can do miracles you can't, you can't do. Matter of fact, you can't do any. How's that? So. <laughs> but, but they can. Like they can. God uses them to raise people from the dead. So the guy on TV who's lying to you about the things that he can do, he's never done that. He's never been able to do that. Some, for some reason, the miracles are all stuff you can't see. Have you ever noticed that? The miracles in the Bible were all public and obvious. Their miracles were all, somebody was cured of cancer. Well, you know, I missed that. I 
I didn't see that. How do I? But, you know, when Jesus raises somebody from the dead, now, you know, if Benny Hinn can do, pull that off, you know, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to rethink this, okay? Or, if anybody makes a claim of raising somebody from the dead, it's always in Africa. It's always, you know, in, in Asia somewhere. You know, it's always some foreign land where nobody's actually, we can't actually see it. But these were public and obvious, and they had abilities that, that we do not, including the ability to write the New Testament and remember what Christ had, had told them. So it's a special group of people. And then, early on in his ministry, he has this born-again discussion with Nicodemus, bottom of page 16. After a visit to Capernaum, where Peter's house became his headquarters, Jesus, along with his new apostles, made a trip south to Jerusalem for the Passover. There he threw the money changers out of the temple, told a Jewish Pharisee named Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then there's this whole Pharisee thing. So we'll look at the Pharisee thing for our last few minutes, but let me talk about Nicodemus for just a moment. When you come to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, that's where the Nicodemus episode is recorded. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. But it tells us there that Nicodemus is a ruler among the Jews. He is a Pharisee, but he's not just a Pharisee. He is part of a group called the Sanhedrin, a group of 15. So this is a select group that rule in religious affairs in Jerusalem. So this guy is, is very prominent in the religious scene in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to him, a guy like that, you must be born again or you're not going to heaven. Just prior to that, just prior to John chapter 3, the very end of chapter 2, the very last verse in John chapter 2, as a matter of fact, Jesus, it says this, Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. That's how chapter 2 ends. Now here's how chapter 3 starts. There was a man named Nicodemus. You see the connection? <laughs> Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. There was a man named Nicodemus. You see, the chapter divisions can mess you up because there were no chapter divisions. So chap the end of chapter 2 flows right into chapter 3. And when John makes that statement about Jesus knowing what is in humanity. And then it goes right into, here's an example of humanity. And the example is not the person that you would expect. It's this prominent religious guy. But he, what's in him, is a problem like it is with everybody else, every other human being. That's what John's setting up. And then when Jesus says, you must be born again, you can see why, because What's in him? What's in Nicodemus? Despite the outside, it's what's inside. That, that, is the, that is the problem. What you see in that encounter with Nicodemus is the gospel versus religion. Nicodemus has religion. He doesn't have the gospel. And Jesus is telling him there must be a change from the inside. Your problem is not the outside, Nicodemus. It's the inside. It appears this Nicodemus was later, later came to, to Christ at the end, at the crucifixion. He's actually there helping uh, with Jesus and the burial arrangements and, and all of that. 
All right, it is 8.15, so last thing, turn to page 21, uh, page 24, page 24. And you see this appendix? And it says, the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. So I encourage you, it's just one page, to, to read that, but it, it tells you where these these two especially, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes, you don't read about in the New Testament. They existed at the time of the New Testament, but their name doesn't show up. But the reason they're kind of important is because they're the ones who hoarded what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in 1947 and became the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we have. They're the people who hoarded those for us, so we, we thank the Essenes for that. But in your New Testament, you find the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it tells you on this page what the difference is between those two. So I encourage you to read that. See you next week.